Our scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land but about a hundred yards off. When they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, Son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, 
If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. This chapter is John's closing to his gospel, and he emphasizes an interaction that takes place between Peter and Christ. And this interaction, as we've studied in years past, is so foundational to Peter's life that it really is essential to understand before we approach Pentecost and see Peter, this one who had denied Christ, actually stand up in the very same city that had just weeks earlier crucified their Messiah. And and Peter stands up in the midst of an uproar, in the midst of a citywide almost riot that was about to break out because of what was going on at the coming of the Spirit, Peter stands and boldly declares the gospel. That is, Jesus Christ is not only Messiah, but he also is Yahweh in the flesh, dwelling among his people, and that the Jews in Jerusalem, through the hands of the Romans, had crucified God that they had crucified not only their Messiah, but also Emmanuel, and they had rejected God from their midst, just as they had done over and over again through the centuries, through their idolatry and through their warring against Yahweh's rule. And so Peter boldly declares this gospel in, in a situation which, is, which we'll see in a few weeks when we get to Pentecost, is full of turmoil and and. Uh, it's it's absolutely terrifying to stand up in that same city in which Christ was murdered and not only say he is a disciple, but actually to be the spokesperson for this new movement of what it means to be a Yahweh worshiper. And we see Peter at Pentecost give a great demonstration of boldness, and yet we know that Peter at the crucifixion, even before during Jesus' trial, denies him three times. And there's something that happens between these two moments. Of course, the coming of the Spirit is is instrumental in Peter's boldness. But before that, there's something that happens that John gives us a very quick glimpse into. And this actually is quite important for every believer. You are not uh, just a disciple with Jesus Christ off on your own, doing nothing, You have been commissioned by Christ, as we saw last week, earlier in the book of John, just a chapter ago, as Jesus comes and stands among the disciples, he says, as the Father has sent me, I have even sent you. And in his high priestly prayer before he goes to the cross, he's praying to the Father that they would have a like mission in the exact same nature and manner as Jesus himself had. And that was to bring glory to the Father and to demonstrate his love in such a way as others, those who are away from the Father, would encounter that love and be brought into the very life of God himself. 
This is the high calling in the Christian life. No other religion teaches this thing, that God himself wishes to bring humanity into his own love. In other religions, you have to earn God's love. You have to submit to God's law, and there's no context of life or fellowship or communion. The great ideal in a religion such as Hinduism is the self-abasement and detachment from not only persons but things in such a way as to become spiritually pure to attain to a unification with the divine out in the cosmic existence. This, of course, is is completely false and, and also hopeless because it is just this mystical, non-real uh, ex- existence in which you seek to attain to perfection. In other faiths, such as Islam, Islam literally means to submit, and to submit to Allah's divine command, which you cannot do, uh, ultimately, and can never be sure of that you have obtained Allah's approval. And in that system of religion, in that system of false religion, a doctrine of demons, man is never seen as participating in the very life of Allah. He is simply always at a distance. And in Christianity, we have a God who not only took on human flesh, but he takes on human flesh in order to atone for sin made in the flesh, and then by that same union with man through that incarnational body, he allows and opens up a gate of life that is the very love of the Father and the Son would be brought to those who the Son draws to himself. And so Jesus, as we have seen throughout the years of this church's teaching and ministry, he is king over all, he is Lord over all, but it is very important that as we continue to live in his kingdom, we realize this is a kingdom of love. This is a kingdom which we are brought in by forgiveness. That is the forgiveness that Christ extends himself at the cross. And that forgiveness that Christ says at the cross becomes real to Peter here. There's something that happens between Peter's denial and Peter's restoration and bold witness, and it's here in meeting with Christ face to face. And so I want to look at five aspects of the passage in, in explicitly how Peter is restored. Now, years ago, we had studied this, actually two years ago in 2014, we had studied this, and there's some wonderful clues that John gives us here. We're not going to spend much time looking at the textual clues for what John is trying to highlight in saying this is Peter's restoration, but I want to actually talk about this on a practical level as if you are in need of this encounter that Peter experienced, because it's my conviction that you are in need of this encounter. At first, the disciples at the beginning of the chapter return to their former life. We're going to look at the history of these disciples very briefly and see why it's so important. What, what does John mean when he's recording that they returned to fishing? We're going to see how Christ is recognized as Lord in this chapter, but that's not, I, I believe that is not the primary focus. That's not the primary point of today's reading, although it is one of the central points. Christ is Lord over these fish as he commands them to jump into these nets. We're going to see Christ's glory here. We're going to kind of touch on this as, a, as an overriding theme. Probably one of the most amazing things for me personally this year is recognizing that in these gospel accounts, Christ is giving clues as to how he is to be known by his disciples. Intentional clues, that is, how he was 
recognized is an ongoing way of communion with and recognition of or fellowship with Jesus. We're, look, we're going to look at the meal that Christ has prepared on the beach already before the disciples get there as a parable or a story which informs us of our relationship to Christ as we seek to be ministers of the gospel. And I, I really believe that this entire narrative has allegorical meaning, and it has, it has meaning that is informative for us as Christians. The restoration of Peter that is based on him asking a series of questions, an undoing of the three denials, and we'll look at that in great detail. And then finally, Peter, his wonderful, uh, wonderful bad example, as he begins to all immediately get distracted from the task at hand. And so these disciples at the beginning of this chapter, they are people who had been living with Jesus Christ for three years, three and a half years, uh, essentially, and, and they were called from their father's vocation. In that day, you received your father's vocation. They didn't have as many technologically uh, technological developments. They didn't have um, a rugged individualism that we have in our culture. And so if your dad was a carpenter, you were a carpenter. If your dad was a fisherman, you were a fisherman. And actually, in the way that God had set up the people of Israel, if your dad was a farmer and had a vineyard, by nature of inheritance, you received part of that vineyard. And so it made a lot of sense if you own a vineyard to be a winemaker or, or someone who makes oil out of, out of olive uh, trees. And so these fishermen were called by Christ at the beginning of their walk. If you remember in the Gospels, at the early point of the Gospels, multiple times they are seen as fishermen. And it's interesting to me that outside of John's Gospel and Matthew, Matthew records some of these very same people as being these fishermen. Now, I want you to think about this. You are a disciple. You've been with Christ for three years. You've, you've lived with him. You've seen his way of life. You've done works of miracles, as Luke 10 and 11 talk about, that, that Christ had sent off these disciples into the towns, and they had performed miracles. They had opened blind eyes. They had opened up deaf ears. They had caused the sick and the lame to, to be restored to health and to walk and to leap. And here, your master is gone. There has been a fundamental change in the nature of the relationship. Before the crucifixion, Christ was with them daily, and after the resurrection, he has appeared a few times, but he is no longer present. And what do the disciples do in the absence of Jesus Christ? They revert back to their former life. They revert back to their former calling, and they forget the mission, even a chapter ago in John's recording, that Christ says, I'm sending you out even as I was sent out. In, in my mind, Peter is so broken over his renunciation of the fellowship with Christ. That is, when, when Peter was asked, are you a disciple? Are you a follower of him? He not only denied being a follower of Christ, he said, I do not even know him. And Peter is so wounded by his sin. He's so, he's so confused and thrown off course by this encounter that he thinks, I should just go back to what I used to do. Everything that Christ has told me, all the commissioning that we looked at last week, it all means nothing. Peter's going fishing. And in fact, even the nature of fishing, even today, kind of sounds like this thing that 
It's just passing time. It's just something to do when you don't know what to do or don't have anything to do. Though Christ was sending them, they go fishing. And the point here is without Christ's active presence, they return back to their former life. They do not yet understand what it is that they received when Christ breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. These disciples have lost their vision. They've lost their way. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. I think this is absolutely amazing, what the, what Christ is doing here in showing them how fruitless it is to, to turn back to what they had formerly destroyed. Paul says, if I build up what I once have destroyed, I profit nothing. And this is exactly what happens to these disciples. They don't catch anything. I want to just engage your imagination for a second. I do things around my house all the time uh, that are that are slightly remodeling. They're not cool enough to be called remodeling. They're, they're not significant enough to actually call someone else to do it, and, but I, I have to do it. So a few weeks ago, I put up a canopy on my back deck and the metal frame exists and I was just putting the canvas on. And then what happened the day after? We had that windstorm. And it was, it was so funny because... My wife texts me, and she says the canopy's essentially dead. It has died. That's how bad the devastation is. And, and I said, I, I think I replied back cynically, of course. <laughs> because I, I, I mean, I had seen the wind, and I knew what was going to happen. And uh, it wasn't that big. It was too late to actually take it down, and it didn't matter. The canvas was old. But I, I just want to exa- examine this. Think about something that you've done, especially if it's physical work, and just everything fails. You're trying to wash the dishes, and every dish falls out of your hand and falls to the floor. You're trying to paint your house, and the paint has been frozen, and the brushes are all, you didn't clean them out last time, and so now you go to Home Depot, and they're out of brushes for a whole night. For a whole night. The level of frustration here is very intentional. And I I just want to say that Christ was active in making these fish stay away from their nets. Christ was active. One of the things I heard this weekend that was fantastic, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, was that if you do not receive the kind messenger, Christ will send the unkind messenger. He causes a frustration here very intentionally. And if you think about, if you think your relationship with Jesus is just rainbows and unicorns, and, and it's just, he's just your, as I said last week, your sugar daddy. If you, if you relate to God like this, he's just there to bless you in your definition of blessing, then you do not know Jesus Christ. And you, you must, like Peter does here, re-examine who is this person. And so Christ intentionally keeps these fish away from the boat, and there is never any fruit to be had in returning to one's former calling. Christ says that those who put their hands to the plow, that is, participate in the kingdom, and then turn away from it, they prove that they're unworthy of the kingdom. Christ greets these young men at the shore, and he greets them with affection. He knows what he's doing, and he is intending to, in what I see take place here, be 
that pro- the fulfillment of that prophecy that Isaiah said, where this one would be the wonderful counselor, and then the title that sometimes confuses Christians because we understand God the Father and God the Son are unique. The title that is given by Isaiah to this Messiah, this Emmanuel, is the Everlasting Father. And in a very real way, Christ approaches and greets these disciples meeting the very need that they have. Remember, we said that these were fishermen because they were receiving a vocation from their father. Whatever their father's vocation was, was most likely just their vocation. It was an automatic thing. And he addresses them as children to put his finger on something about their relationship that I think we need to see. Verse 5, Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? Not only did Christ keep the fish out of the boat, he made them know that they had failed. He made them know that he had fa- that they had failed. He did not simply let them experience pain and not bring something out of it. Christ puts his finger on their frustration and pokes it. He makes them recognize, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. It's important to understand, Christ is not shaming them. He's not shaming them because if he was, he wouldn't be doing anything about it. He's not gloating over them, but he is not lying to them. He is telling the truth to them. He loves them enough to put his finger on their problem. That is, they think they can go back to the time that they don't know Christ any longer. And so verse 6, he says, cast the net on the right side of the boat. Apparently they had been casting it on the wrong side of the boat. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. Now, we can spend some time, if we want to, talking about the number of fish that Simon will eventually come and bring. But the point is that Christ is demonstrating he has everything. He's got everything. And that includes control over fish and the powers of of really world control. Jesus is the God-man. He's way cooler than Superman. Superman never does anything like this. He, he's not concerned with people's hearts. Christ is not just displaying his power for a sideshow. He's not doing this to put it up on YouTube. He's doing this to teach them that they cannot re- renounce him, which is what Peter tried to do. The essence of Peter's denial was a fundamental renunciation or a rejection of who Christ had called him to be, follow me. And then from this point, Peter then begins to think, well, I've already, I've already screwed up. Christ has come and visited us, but we don't know how to follow him. Let's just go back to fishing. Now, I, I want to make it plain that this is what they intended to do, because if you were just fishing for recreational fun, then it would not have mattered, and they would not have continued to fish all night. And they probably would have used, I I don't know from the context, I'm not a historian of the first century fishing culture, but they probably would not have been using deep net fishing on boats in the sea. They would have been doing what we do today, which is pole fishing, very very simple, rudimentary type of fishing. It's clear because they stay out all night and because they're using their deep net fishing that they are they need to make some some money here they're probably trying to get a harvest and so peter is not just simply going fishing for the sake of going fishing he's going back to his old life 
the post-resurrection accounts in these gospel narratives, the way that the gospel writers have told these stories, are accurate stories. They're not stories in the sense of a fable or a fictional story, but a narrative that is a recording of the event that is faithful to how the event happened, and yet also contains some poetic elements through the highlighting that the author does to bring about an intended understanding in the reader. Now that's a very complicated idea, but it's simply this. None of the gospel writers lie, and yet in everything that Christ is doing, he's doing it in such a way that the gospel writers faithfully recording the events, through this, Christ will be able to say something. This is what I believe is the major interpretive schema or the way in which you understand what the the post-resurrection accounts are all about. In the garden, we, we saw this last year at our time in Easter, Christ calls Mary Magdalene to himself. And if you remember the story, Mary's there and she's in the, in the garden and she is not knowing where the Christ body is. She presumes that Christ is the gardener. He probably looked like a gardener or was doing gardener-like things. And then Christ is recognized after a short conversation with her. He calls her by name. And she recognizes Christ. This is the exact same thing that happens at the road to Emmaus, but in a different way. After they were on this journey, they begged Christ to to eat with them. He was dialoguing with them about everything in the Old Covenant Scriptures, unfolding all the Messianic prophecies, the major signs and types. He explains this to these two disciples, and they have no idea who he is. And then it says in Luke's account of Luke chapter 24 that he was recognized in the breaking of bread. When, when Christ fellowships through food with these disciples, they recognized who he was, though they had been hearing him for hours. It's important to see these as pointers to ongoing ways in which we today, as Christians, continue to meet Christ. It is not simply when we encounter him calling us by name or see him in some context apart from a revelation of Christ. It's not enough to just receive information of Christ. You must hear him call you by name. In the upper room, like we saw last week, Christ shows himself through his scars and through his side. And I think the reason Christ does this, and we see this later in John's account in the book of Revelation, that he retains those physical marks on him as an eternal reminder of the sacrifice that he made. In the book of Revelation, John says he sees a lamb, and then he describes that lamb, a lamb as if he had been slain. And though in the resurrection Christ receives this wonderful glorified body, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, there's an eternal reminder and demonstration of Christ's love. I think this means that we should continue to meditate on the nature of Christ's sacrifice as being done for us. If you were killed for someone, it would probably be, in our account of the situation, very hurtful to that person to them, for them to be continually reminded of, their, of that sacrifice that you made. But I don't think that's the way it is with us in Christ. I think that we are actually benefited. We recognize Christ when we meditate on and recognize once again the scars and his side. 
Here, Christ makes himself known in power as Lord over all creation. And John, in this account, recognizes Christ in the miracle. He recognizes Christ through the miracle that Christ had done. As soon as they begin to see that all the fish are now jumping into their nets in places where they had already probably fished that night, he then recognizes there's something else at work. Now, I just want to say that if you're on a boat and you have two sides and you're fishing all night, they had probably already used the left side and the right side. It wasn't as if Jesus said, oh, well, there's something on the left side of your boat. There's, you know, something that's disturbing all the fish. Just try the right side. This isn't a natural explanation for, for the account. John understands it's the Lord. And he's given this revelation, I believe, by the, the Holy Spirit opening his eyes through the miracle, through the revelation which was unleashed at the miracle. It says, The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When, Peter, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. In, a, in another verse, it's going to say that they were about 100 yards or a few few feet. Um, it's probably the case if you're a fisherman that you're a good swimmer. Nevertheless, swimming, uh, what I believe it says is a, about a, 100 yards, uh, is no easy feat. If you swam 100 yards, you're essentially swimming the length of a football field, right? And uh, this is this is a very far distance. Christ is shouting from the shore and they are, you know, recognizing him through the miracle. And Peter decides it's no longer worth trying to get the fish. He now recognizes Christ's miracle working power and wants to be on the shore more than wanting to get the fish. I think there the allegory here is that Peter, although the depth of his brokenness was so complete, that he had reverted back to his former life as soon as he sees Christ extending his hand toward Peter again. He wants to be with Christ more than getting the fish. I think Peter recognizes his need, and this is why he's willing to swim essentially a football field's length. Now, again, just think about that for a minute. You're on a boat, you're getting these fish, you're going back to shore in a few minutes, and yet you know the Lord's there. And Peter is clearly ashamed of his, uh, uh, of his rejection of Christ, and yet he wants to be with the Lord intentionally. So when they get to the shore, we, we know from the story, they bring in the fish, the nets miraculously don't break. They probably should have broken based on the number of fish that come. And they make it to the shore, and as soon as they get to the shore, Christ already has a meal prepared. Remember, he asks them, children, do you have any fish? They say no. And so when they get to shore, they see Christ with a charcoal fire. Again, that very same type of fire. The the words charcoal fire are only two places in the New Testament, where Peter denies Christ three times, and then here, when he encounters Christ and is restored by the same number, of affirmations and calling to mission. The point here is that Christ already has a meal prepared before they get to the shore. Verse 8, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Now, typically, a, a meal for fishermen is fish and bread, but I think John's intending to remind us 
of this pattern of miracle working power of fish and bread, the loaves and the fishes recorded in all the various gospels are, are emphasizing his power. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. See, verse 9, there are fish already. Verse 10, Jesus says, then bring the fish that you have as well. I think it's clear here that Jesus is fishing before they are. They didn't see him throughout the night, and yet on the shore he already has fish prepared for them. There's a fire that already exists. And yet, he does say, bring the fish that you catch. The disciples' source of food, therefore, is not in their gathering for the Lord. The importance of this for those who continually give and serve and work for the Lord cannot be missed. His disciples are not fed with the result of their work, but they're fed from Christ's own hands. Christ was fishing before that night. He was fishing at some point, and they did not see him do it. And that is the way that they were nourished in this story. Even though that's the case, even though their work does not become their own food, Christ has them bring their fish. They're not excluded from their mission because of their own failure and their need for Christ's miracle-working power. Nevertheless, that is not their source of nourishment. And I think that this is more than spiritual. Christ is intending to do something as a natural parable for them to see where does their food come from. Those who labor with Christ must recognize this aspect of the kingdom. In, in Matthew 18, Jesus says to his disciples and those around, he says, unless you become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And here, the nature of Christ's fathering that he's doing by calling these disciples as children is emphasizing this point. How do children eat, you young parents, or, or even older parents? How do children eat at the table? Do they ask you to eat? As soon as you call them to the table, you actually have to do very intentional things to not get them to just dive into the food. You have to teach them, hey, it's not time, we're going to pray first, we have a reading, or whatever your, whatever your ritual around food is, children assume. When I was a, a kid, actually, uh, I, I kind of, someone told me this one time about the nature of children and what Christ is trying to get at, and I, I gave some thought to it, and I began to realize it would kind of be absurd uh, for it to be any other way. Children, by nature of their relationship to their parents, God gives them, them parents so that the parents would nurture and nourish these children. And it, your home may have been different, but in our home, we just open the fridge whenever we want to. Now, sometimes you say, this is my cheese, or this is my, you know, you can't get into the beer, you're 10. Uh, but... But essentially, as children, most of us probably know the experience of having free reign to whatever is in our parents' homes. And then also consider the, the existence of a young child. A young child does not think about where his next meal comes from. That is the way of the kingdom of God. Children must receive. Children do receive. And they don't think about where their next meal comes from in such a way as to constantly work for it. In the way that God has established families, although of course there are, there are places in the world where children do think of their next meal, and that, that is terrible, but as the kingdom of God exists throughout the ages, it's become typical, especially in countries where his blessing is made manifest, that children simply receive. They don't work for 
their food. Now, I think they probably should work for their food more than they do, but that's not the point here. The point is, unless you become like a child, and a child simply receives, a child is not a servant, a son is not a servant, a son has, is heir to everything in the house, though he may not have free reign over everything in the house, the son receives, and servants work for things. Just as children eat with complete reliance upon their parents, so also these disciples must recognize that Christ is the source of not only their nourishment, but their very life and all of their spiritual health. Peter is grieved because of his sin, and he absolutely knows and recognizes his sin. And I'm sure that that meal was somewhat bittersweet for Peter. He's just been caught fishing. Think about when you've been caught doing something that you know you weren't supposed to do, especially by a father figure or parent. Peter is, is, he's gone back to his old way of life. He considers himself unworthy of the mission that Christ had just commissioned them with just a chapter ago. And he's now been shown to be completely powerless to bring about that harvest, which he was seeking outside of the will of Christ. I'm sure that meal was completely embarrassing for Peter and yet Christ spends time with him. He interacts with Peter. He, he fellowships with Peter. He doesn't shame him away from the table. But he does put his finger on the very thing that Peter needs to be healed of. His rejection, which came because of his reliance on his emotional power, his spiritual fortitude that Peter was trusting in, his own effort and his own ability. The master physician, that is Christ, his words move like a knife in this passage to Peter's heart. And we see Christ cutting away through the first question and through the second question and then the third question. And by the third question, we see Peter finally is opening his life to Christ. He says, Christ or Jesus, you know everything. You know that I love you. See, Peter, through this encounter, through Jesus' words to Peter, is being restored, and Peter is being forced to acknowledge the fact that Christ is able to keep him from stumbling. And it's no longer in Peter's answers about Peter's knowledge. He finally gets to the place where he says, you know everything. You know that I love you. The last question, verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Again, that aspect of identifying Simon as a child, the son of John, John's father. In other translations, Simon Barjona, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to them, him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to them, said to him, feed my sheep. It's important to see here, Jesus is saying, do you love me? And then after the, the correct answer, which is yes, uh, Peter does at least get the correct answer. Then Christ says, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Then feed. Do you love me? Feed. It's not about feeding first. Jesus is intending to tell Peter, he's at this goal of through this threefold repetition, which matched the number of denials that Peter had made concerning, do you know me? And yet Jesus here is asking, do you love me? Then feed. Do you love me? If, if you get that right, then you can feed. If you don't get that right, if that's not the starting point, you can't feed. 
And in fact, that's what's going on in the whole chapter, isn't it? There's a meal already prepared on the beach, and then after that, you're restored. You fellowship with Christ and are restored. What has Jesus done? In asking Peter if he loves him, Jesus is redirecting Peter to focus on him before feeding the lambs. And in fact, it's even more important here when we consider Jesus as the great and and good shepherd, the true shepherd, who is feeding his disciples, and they don't have any food at first. He not only causes them to have a harvest, he causes them to have a harvest of the very same thing that they would be eating later. To press the point, it's only after the meal that God tells Peter to feed his lambs. See, Peter had fellowshiped with Christ, and then Christ restored him. He did not restore Peter to his mission and to that centrality of the love of God before the meal. And this is what Christ is doing to intend to say that he will stick with him. Likewise, I believe it is true of us that we can only minister out of our relationship with Christ. If you're ever wondering why you aren't ever sharing the gospel, one of the answers to why you're not sharing the gospel with your friends, if you've been convicted of this, perhaps is that you don't think it's your mission. If you answer that question and you begin to understand, yes, it is my mission, but you then ask the question of, okay, I know I'm supposed to share the gospel, and I kind of want to, but how come I never really do it? I would say possibly based on this reading, based on this idea that it's only after we fellowship with Christ that we even have anything to share, then you really need to meet with Christ and you need to allow the great physician to open up your heart until he gets to that central issue. Do you really know that you love him? And are you focused on your love for him before? The question, do you love me, must be answered before you can be told to feed his lambs. And how encouraging is Peter's example? We, we sometimes read Peter's example and we think, oh, Peter, this was terrible. You messed up. But look at, at what happens right after Peter is restored. I mean, this is a glorious way, not only in the literature, but in entering into the story by meditating on it. It's a wonderful, beautiful story. And look at what Peter does right after This amazing restoration, he again turns aside and he shows that he's not really fully understanding. The work of grace has not taken root completely in his heart. And he turns aside, going back to that same pattern that we see earlier in the Gospels. It's not just Peter, but the Gospel writers tell us that all the disciples routinely did this when they warred warred within themselves, deciding who would be the greatest in the kingdom. And Peter's just been restored to this calling, being told three times, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. And Peter then asks Jesus, well, what about this guy? It's just, it's helpful to understand when, when, um, when John writes the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's a humble way of saying me. John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I think it's actually intended so that we can kind of begin to insert ourselves in the story. We are the disciple whom Jesus loved, but look at what Peter does. He says, Lord, what about this guy? It's helpful occasionally to make your own translation. It says this man, but it, just imagine being there. Peter's concerned with what's going to happen to John. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Now John did remain until Christ came, and that he did come in judgment at, against the 
city of Jerusalem in the AD uh, in the time of 70 AD. That's not the point. John the God, uh, John the Apostle uh, is not walking around the earth, remaining until Christ came. And also, it's clear that they totally misconstrue the point of what Jesus is getting at. The point isn't whether John lives or doesn't live until Christ comes. The point is that they're supposed to follow Christ. We err so often in comparing ourselves to other disciples, whether they're more fruitful or they're a better worship leader, or they're a better teacher, or what have you. The point here is Peter is still constantly in the comparison game. He's been restored to feed the lambs, but what about the other disciples? And Jesus will have none of it. He just simply tells Peter, Peter, you're off track. Follow me. Peter's concern was always, in the past, concerned with the pecking order, right? The disciples, which of us will be the greatest? And Jesus continually says to them, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the servant of all. The greatest is like a child. The greatest takes the lowest position. When you enter a banquet, don't take the seat of honor, but take the lowest seat, the seat near the the bowls where people would wash. That's the whole point of the upper room. There's this place, the position, that all the disciples could have taken None of them take, and so Christ girds himself as the servant in order to wash their feet. That was like a job, like setting the table is a job now for us in our mealtimes. That was, Jesus waited for a time to see if any one of the disciples understood, finally, that the greatest is the servant of all. And so he eventually arises and takes takes off his outer garment and puts on the servant's towel to do that work. And we see even in that story, it's only after being washed that you can have fellowship with Christ. Christ here is reorienting Peter in this regard. And so as disciples of Christ, following him requires that we focus upon him and forsake judging ourselves against our fellow disciples. If you are still routinely thinking about others, and I I know that you are, then you have not entered into the fullness of what Christ has for you. Christ has a fellowship for you which is real, sweet, and powerful, and from it, it is the only real basis by which you will have anything to share with your neighbor. But you must begin to see that your primary focus should be following Christ. Your primary focus should not be concerned with your brothers and sisters. Peter is told, follow me. It doesn't matter what John's role is. It doesn't matter what the other disciples are going to do or not do, or the role that they'll play. Peter has to begin to look to Christ alone. And in following Christ, then he will have truly a wonderful calling, as we see the rest of the New Testament bears witness. It is only after we feast with Jesus Christ that we will have anything to give our neighbor. The law is summed up, as Christ Christ tells us in the Gospels, to love the Lord and love neighbor. And it's not just one or the other, A versus B, it's primary and secondary. Loving the Lord becomes how we are able to love our neighbor. That's what Christ is intending to get to with Peter. So my question to you is, have you encountered Christ in this way? Do you know that you love him? And have you begin to have you begun to see that your understanding of loving Christ is based upon Christ's knowledge, not yours? It's important to understand that Christ must know you truly. And if there are layers of unbelief and layers of hardness of heart against 
Christ, against true fellowship with him in a real way, on an emotional level, on a spiritual level, then you do not fully understand what Christ is here for. He's here for fellowship, to wash you completely, and to eat with you, to restore you to his own love. That's what it means to encounter Christ in Easter. Let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would grant us a great grace, which is reality, that you would forgive us, Lord, for creating false ways of life, false practices, hardness of heart, even while trying to supposedly seek you, that you would give us a right understanding of mission and how we are to love our neighbors, that you would allow us to see every single person that we meet as someone who we can love, but not based on our own zeal or effort, but based on the fact that you know all things, that you know that we love you. God, I pray that you would reorient us, that you would give those who are weary and, uh, and broken a, a restoration. And Lord, I also ask that you would allow us to, like Peter, truly eat with you and dine with you and fellowship with you. Lord, your calling, even as you called Peter to die a martyr's death, as it says that he would stretch out his hands, that that, that calling, which is high and noble, would not uh, cause us to push away from you or to be afraid of you, but that you would allow us, like Peter, to have a, a an honesty where whereby we allow you to ask us hard questions. Jesus, we pray that you would give to us real and true, vibrant relationships with you, that, that though we see you as Lord over everything and ruling over a kingdom which is massive and great, that we would not turn the kingdom of God into something out there that doesn't apply to our hearts, that we would not only have true piety, but that we would have true zeal and true knowledge. Lord, I, I pray that you would guard us as people who love to to learn and to read, that you would guard us, Lord, from false intimacy with you, but that you would bring real, true love into our lives. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.